Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bill Anzavino, pastor of Christian Assembly Family Church in Ohioville, Pennsylvania. We pray you are challenged in your walk with the Lord through the following teaching. For more information about Christian Assembly Family Church or to subscribe to our free podcasts, please visit us on the web at cafamily.net. Praise God. Tonight we're talking about following love. One way that we can cooperate with God without a doubt is to, co- is to follow love, to be love-guided, love-directed, and follow the lead of love. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of studying your word together tonight. We do so in the precious name of Jesus. Give us ears to hear it, hearts to receive it, minds that are open to it. Change us by it from glory to glory. Conform us to the very image of Jesus that we might become that for which he has apprehended us and lay down his life for each and every one of us. Father, we'll give you all the praise and all the honor and all the glory. Hallelujah for all things in Jesus' name. Amen. Second John, the epistle of John, verse 6, tells us, and what this love consists in is this, that we live and walk in accordance with and are guided by his commandments, his orders, ordinances, precepts, teaching. This is the commandment, as you have heard from the beginning, that you continue to walk in love. Notice, guided by it and following it. So, God desires to use each and every one of us as vessels of honor, vessels of his power, so that through us he can touch the hearts and lives of the people that we come into contact with in everyday life, in our circle of influence. He wants us, of course, to bring many to Christ. He wants us to help heal the brokenhearted, set those that are captive free. And any need that a person has, he wants to use us to get to them to provide for that need. So he wants to use every one of us as a vessel. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was sent to the earth, that was his mission. Remember Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, what he said? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why? Because he sent me to preach good news to the poor. The good news to the poor, which is the gospel to the poor, is talking about those who are meek, those who are humble, and those who are well aware of their spiritual deficiencies. Their need, in other words, for God. Was there a point in your life that you knew you needed God? It's too often that people go through life and think they could navigate on their own. But no, the time comes when a person realizes, oh my goodness, without him, we are nothing. Have nothing, know nothing, can do nothing. We say it all the time. It's true. And to be honest with you, with each day that goes by, we need to realize and recognize more and more how much we need of him in our lives. So the good news to the poor is you don't have to be spiritually bankrupt anymore. Praise God, there's life in Jesus. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted. People who are brokenhearted. Notice this is the platform of Jesus to heal brokenhearted people who have been crushed by the storms of life. Those have been run over by circumstances and situations and adversities. 
And those whose emotions are just overwhelmed and overcome by hurt, heartache, and pain. And there are a lot of people that are out there in the world today that fit that description. Wouldn't you agree? Well, Jesus came, and what's the good news? To heal the brokenhearted and to bind up all their wounds. I'll be honest with you. This is a message that's got to get out to the people that are out there in the world today. Jesus came to heal your broken heart and bind up your every wound. You don't have to turn to all these other resources for help when you can turn to him and get ultimate help. Only he can heal the broken heart. Only he can bind up every wound created in the human heart and life. He said also, he said he, sent, he was sent to do what? Preach deliverance to the captives. Deliverance to the captives. Those that are enslaved or imprisoned by the enemy, by sin, you can say by vices. You could be enslaved to drugs or alcohol or tobacco or food addictions. And the list goes on and on, pornography and all that. Well, what's the good news? You don't have to be. There are those that think there's nothing I can do about it. Yes, there is. You can go to the one who, pre who brings deliverance to you and begin to cooperate with him and speak to your mountain and just say you have no right to rule over my life. When you are in Christ, praise God, he makes you more than a conqueror over all the things that come against us in this life. But we must cooperate with him and speak, proclaim, declare, and decree the word. Speak to the mountain and say to it, whatever it might be. You have no power over my life. When's the last time you spoke to your mountain? Or is the mountain speaking to us? Speak to the mountain. Proclaim it. Also, to recover sight to the blind. And that could be both spiritual and physical. And Jesus did both when he was here upon the earth. Did he not? To set at liberty those that are bruised. Have you been bruised when you're chained? Just like Samson was chained and grinding at the mill of the enemy. Those chains can cause bruising. Well, he came to do what? Set at liberty them that are bruised and to preach once and for all the acceptable year of the Lord, the year of Jubilee. The year came. It's here. He came. He is our Jubilee. And that means he delivers, sets free, and makes whole. That means everyone has restored back once again all the possessions that they lost in the fall of man. Oh, thank God you can have your spiritual self healed, delivered, and made whole. You can be regenerated. Your mind can be restored. Our minds can be restored. Our bodies can receive health, praise God. We can have our financial needs met. Everybody gets their possessions back. Anything that we've lost, thank God we got them all back in Christ. He's already done it. It's already been provided for, and so we thank him for that. He perfectly demonstrated the very heart of God when he came into the earth. And look at Matthew 14 and verse 14. The motive behind everything that Jesus did is found right here. This sums it all up. Jesus went forth, saw a great multitude, and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. What was the motivating force behind the ministry of Jesus? What was the motivating force behind him healing the sick and setting the captives free? Some say, well, he wanted to prove his deity. No, he did not heal to prove his deity. He healed because of compassion. And what is compassion? It's being sympathetic toward the suffering of another person 
with a burning, yearning desire to alleviate the suffering. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He was so moved when he saw someone sickly. He was so moved when he saw a broken heart. When he saw that funeral procession and that woman, her son, her only son, was being carried in the casket. He stopped the procession, raised him from the dead, gave her back her son. Why? Compassion. He didn't stop and say, look who I am. No, he was compassionate toward her loss and was so moved. May I ask you a question? Is he less compassionate today than he was when he walked the earth then? Not at all, because he's the same yesterday, today, forever, and always. In John's Gospel, chapter 20, now notice this. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, why? That you may, might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by be believing ye might have life through his name. Notice it says these are written, not performed, but written. They were written so people would believe. And there are many other things that Jesus did that are not written, but these were hand-selected by the Holy Ghost to help people believe. But once again, they were not performed for that reason. They were written. Look at John 21. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. Is that not mind-boggling? The world could not contain the things that would be written if everything was written that Jesus did when he was here on this earth. Oftentimes you'll hear me say, Jesus did more in one week than 4,000 years of human history as far as helping people. He healed more people in one week. Multitudes came to him. And they were all delivered and set free. And why? Because of his compassion. That's why. Not to prove anything, but because of his compassion. You could almost see it this way. God was so compassionate because Jesus came to reveal the heart of God, the Father heart of God. He saw people hurting. He saw people suffering. And he couldn't tolerate it. He couldn't stand it. Jesus came to this earth. And what does he do? Matthew chapter 4, the first thing he does after coming up out of the water, being baptized, he goes into Galilee, and he begins to wreak havoc with the kingdom of darkness. He casts out devils. He heals sick people. He makes them whole. And he says, the kingdom of God has come unto you. You've been ravaged by the kingdom of darkness, but now the kingdom of God and of light and of love has come to you, have come to you, and be set free, be delivered, be made whole. Know the heart of God. He was compassionate, and that's how he ministered life to people. In Matthew chapter 15, we see an illustration of this. Jesus departs from thence. This is chapter 15. Remember, 14 said he was moved with compassion, healed all their sick. So he departed from thence and came nigh to the Sea of Galilee and went up to a mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes. Now, multitude is a lot multitudes is even more and great multitudes you can't count came unto him 
having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet. And he healed them, insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole, the lame to walk, the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now, those are the ones that are specified, but what about the many others that were there as well? We don't know what their conditions were. Then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude. I have what? Compassion on the multitude. Wait a minute. He just got done healing the blind, the deaf, the dumb, and the maimed. Body parts that were removed from people's bodies or body parts that were never formed in people's bodies. He brought them wholeness once again. And now, look what he says. I've got compassion on the multitude. Why? Because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. Would you call that concern? Would you call that compassion? Not like some, you know, hey, we just had this wonderful meeting. Let's take off out of here because, you know, we're better than the rest. No, not Jesus. Jesus is so compassionate toward them. He knows they're hungry. They haven't eaten anything for a while. And so he says, we've got to do something. His disciples said unto him, when should we have so much bread in the wilderness? Always look in the natural. As to fill so great a multitude. And Jesus saith unto them, how many loaves have ye? And they said, seven. That's a pretty good number, wouldn't you say? Seven. And a few little fishes. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fishes and two powerful words. What did he do? Gave thanks. Thank you. And break them and gave to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets full. And they that did eat were 4,000 hungry men beside women and children. And he sent away the multitude and took ship and came to the coast of Magdala. What I want us to get from this, from this campaign, you can say this mountaintop meeting where all these people got healed, he was still concerned for their need for food. And he made provision for it. How do you get seven loaves and a few fishes and feed everybody to their field and then how many baskets are left over? Seven baskets left over. Think about it. Incredible. But what was the motivation behind the miracle? Compassion. I have compassion towards these people. Well, did you notice in uh, John's Gospel, chapter 14, that you and I, according to Jesus, now you see the double verily there, wherever there's a double verily, truly, truly, verily, verily, it means listen intently, because what I'm saying is absolutely, positively true. But he drives the point home because he knows it's going to be something that's mind-boggling to all of us. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do. 
And the reason, because I go to my father. Wow. Well, how are we going to do the works of Jesus if we're not going to do them the same way he did them? And if he did them motivated by compassion, you know what begins with us? How compassionate are we toward suffering people, toward hurting people, toward hungry people, toward needy people, people whose hearts are broken, people who are bound in prison by these vices that are in the world today? How compassionate are we toward these people that are out there in the world suffering? Because you see, that's the motivation that we all should have. When we minister to people, what we're doing is we're ministering the love of God to them. And so we've got to have the same compassion that he had, the same love that he had, the same motivation that he had to do what? To help these hurting people in our society today, starting in our home, starting with our own family. But notice here in Matthew's gospel, chapter 16, in order for us to get there, I believe this is a requirement. Then said Jesus to his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Number one, deny himself of what? Living an independent lifestyle. In other words, living apart from God. Do you realize we need him every single day of our lives? It is easy for us just to start a day off and not even think about the Lord or whatever. But you know what? That's a sense of pride. When you get out of bed, thank you for seeing us through the night, for your faithfulness at night and your loving kindness in the morning. When are we most vulnerable? When you're resting your head on the pillow of his promises and you have no clue what's going on around you. But you can rest your head on the pillow of his promises because you know surrounding you is his favor, his holy angels, right? You're denying yourself of, live, of, of a lifestyle that's independent of God. You're letting him know, I need you today. I need direction from your spirit. I need illumination to my mind. I need the breath that I breathe, the air that I breathe. I need health, healing, and wholeness, and soundness of mind. I need direction. I need whatever I need from you. Mercy, I need grace. I need divine enablement and empowerment. I need, praise God, all that you have, your presence, your power, your peace, your promises, your provision, your protection, I need every day of my life. See, that's called humility. We humble ourselves before him. I need to have a revelation of your compassion. I need to have the same compassion in me that you had toward people. You know, in some cases, we need to separate ourselves and get alone with God and just say, man, let some of that compassion rise up big in me so that when I see people, I am more compassionate than I am critical of people. Compassionate toward people, toward helping people, wanting to minister to the needs of people. So deny yourself Take up your cross means to surrender your will to do his will. Complete surrender. I want your will to be done today in my life. That's what my longing desire is. I surrender all. We sang the song here tonight. I'm surrendering myself to you. I'm giving up everything for you. I want to benefit you. I want to benefit the kingdom of God. I want to benefit the needs of other people. I want to help others. I want to be a blessing everywhere I go. And I know that you've blessed me, but you've blessed me to make me a blessing more than anything else. 
as I live my life here upon the earth. I am completely sold out to you so I can be the conduit that you use so that you can flow through me and touch the hearts and minds of other people. And that could be in many different ways. You can send a card. You realize how impacting it is to send a card to someone of encouragement that may be going through a trial or a difficult situation in life? Guaranteed, it'll encourage that person to rise up. It'll lift up their spirit. But God wants to, through you, show his compassion to other people and minister life through each and every one of us as we live our lives here upon this earth. He wants us to follow love. Jesus followed love. Jesus was guided by love. And we too can be followers of love and be guided by love. As a matter of fact, what's Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1 and 2 tell us? Be followers of God and, as dear children. And verse 2 says, and walk in love. If I'm going to imitate God, be a follower of God, be guided by love, and I will. And he wants all of us to do the same thing. Now notice uh, also the third thing. Surrender your heart, surrender your will to him, and follow. Follow. When you're young, you play the game, follow the leader. And what does that mean? What the person does, I'm to imitate, I'm to do. Well, whatever we saw him do, we're to do as well. And Jesus said that, the works I do, share you do also. And greater than these, because I go to my Father. So we're here to continue the works of Jesus. But we can't continue those works in our own strength, power, or ability. We need His. And so we have to draw from and be filled with and full of His power, His equipping, His anointing every single day of our lives to be being filled with the Holy Ghost so that we can minister effectively to others. Look at the book of Ephesians chapter 3 because here once again it's all about love. God is love and if you're a follower of God you'll be a follower of love and if you're a follower of love you'll be a follower of God. Paul prayed this prayer for the church at Ephesus knowing these truths and he says this in this prayer, for this cause, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family of God in heaven and earth is named, that you would grant us, according to the riches of your glory, to be strengthened with might by your spirit in the inner man, that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith, that we being rooted and grounded. Notice those two words, rooted and grounded. The root system and the foundation. When it comes to a plant, the root system is essential to be strong and healthy, is it not? When it comes to a foundation, it's important we have a good foundation upon which to build a house, right? Rooted and grounded in what? Agape, divine love. That's our root system. Why? That we may be, that pass, that we may be, that we may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth of height. Notice this, the four endless dimensions or boundless dimensions of God's love. It's breadth, it's length, it's depth, it's height. If there's anything we should study in the Bible, it should be this. The breadth, the length, the depth, the height of God's love that passes knowledge that we might be filled with all the fullness of God and he would be able to do for us exceeding abundantly but of all that we ask or think according to this power that's efficiently operative in all of our lives. So let's back it up. We're to be rooted and grounded in this divine love of God. This is love that is based on principle and decision. It's not based on feeling and emotion. It's based on I made a decision that I'm going to love no matter how I feel. I'm motivated by compassion. I'm motivated by love. Okay. And this will be impacting 
when it comes to our lives and of course the lives of people that we minister to. But number one, look at the individual. As far as an individual life is concerned, if I want God's power manifesting in and through my life, then I must be rooted and grounded in the love of God. And what that involves, it's a twofold thing. Number one, how much he loves me. And I believe this is essential. I need to train myself to understand or renew my mind with this revelation that God loves me so much that it's incomprehensible. He loves me that much. See, if I don't know that, how am I going to pass that on to someone else? He loves us with an endless love. He loves us with a proven love. His love sent his son to die for us. And so he says, look, I've introduced you to my love. And now you know how much I love you. You know how much I care about you. So as an individual, if I want to be filled with all the fullness of Almighty God, I need to have a revelation of the breadth, the length, and the depth, and the height of God's love that passes knowledge so I can be filled with the fullness of God. I need to know, number one, how much he loves me. And number two, how much he loves that person that's unlovely before me. Think about that statement. There's a lot of people that are in this world that are unlovely, and we know that. They're hard to love, and we know that. You think about murderers. You think about rapists. You think about all the different clientele, if you will, that are out there in the world today, you know, and, and you just want to lash out. But God says, even love your enemies. We need to recognize how much he loves us so that we can also love others and know that he loves that person, even though that person's a sinner, even though that person has done horrific things, God still loves them. And God does not want them to spend an eternity in the lake of fire. And if he can use any one of us to get to them, he will do that to prevent them from going there. So as an individual, I need to know that he loves me. And because I know that love, he'll do exceeding abundantly above all I ask or think in me and through me. Number two, when it comes to a marital relationship, when it comes to marriage, love will pull down the walls that selfishness have, have erected in any household. Love will see to it that it will mend any kind of broken relationship in marriage. Which is why when two people get married, and I often do this even in my ceremonies, I let them know, you've given up your rights to say, to say, ever, say again, I don't love you. Those rights, you've given up. Because you see, that love is based on principle and decision, not feeling and emotion. And... It's a choice to love someone for the rest of your life. So when it comes to marriage, it's just like uh, oftentimes I'll say, you're buying an automobile. You don't make the payment, you, forf you forfeit the car to repossess it. And if you say, I didn't make the payment because I don't feel like it, they don't change their mind and just say, oh, okay, keep the car. You make your payment because whether you feel like it or not, you made an obligation you made a vow. And when two people come together and they get married, they make a vow one to another. And you know what I say about that vow? Fix it. If you have feelings that say, 
I don't feel like I love him or I don't feel like I love her, well then get it fixed. Remember what Jesus said when you lost your fir- or left your first love in the book of Revelation? What did he say? Remember. Remember from whence you are fallen. Repent and repeat. The three R's. R-R-R. Remember the good times. Remember the courtship. Remember all the wonderful highlights of your relationship. Repent for allowing it to disintegrate in any way. Repent. And then repeat. What does repeat mean? Do the first works over. Just, just do what you did from the very beginning. You see, love will see to it that a marital relationship is strong and it will get stronger or it will repair the walls that selfishness brought down. Number three, when it comes to a family, it can create a heaven-like atmosphere in the home. When, can you imagine when all people in the family make a decision to live by the rule of divine love and they let agape love basically govern their lives or regulate their lives. And they start loving each other on purpose. And then they begin trying to outdo each other in love. Imagine the kind of atmosphere that will be created within that home when everyone makes a decision, love rules in this house. We're not going to be selfish and self-centered and self-willed. We're going to love God, put him first, and love one another as he loved us. Notice he changed it when it comes to the New Testament. He didn't say love your neighbor as yourself. That was Old Testament. He said, now you love as I have loved you. He raises the bar on love. Love the same way I loved you. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Wives, love your husbands by submitting to their leadership and surrendering you know, to the guidance and direction that comes from the throne through them. Love is key to succeeding in any realm of life, whether it's marriage, whether it's in the home, and then even in the community. Can you imagine in the community where people are given the love and they're always looking out for the next person, for the other person, and, and doing everything they possibly can to help other people succeed? I can't wait until the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ when he will sit upon the throne and he will rule this world in love. He's going to show us what it's like. You know, when it comes to unity, when it comes to a church, for example, I'm going to, I'm going to be honest with you right here. This assembly of believers really is a body of believers that are dedicated to love. We truly are a family of God. And when people decide to come together and do it God's way and let God orchestrate things and put people in the right places as he sees fit, as he wants to, there is established within that church unity that the enemy cannot penetrate. You know, when people dwell together in unity, it's a good thing, the Bible says in Psalm 133. In the beginning in in Genesis chapter 11, what are we told? That because they tried to build this Babel tower, the Tower of Babel, God said, look, they're united as one. There's nothing that they won't be able to do. Think about that. And what about this? Jesus said, 
if two of us just agree on earth is touching anything we shall ask, it'll be done. So when people live or dwell together in unity, number one, it makes it easier for them to achieve their goals because they're all working together to the same end. They're speaking the same thing. They're minding the same thing. And all this is motivated by love. We want to see the glory of God manifesting among us when we all have that same heart, same mind, that same goal. It's easier to achieve that goal when we all have that same desire. Also, it creates walls that the enemy cannot penetrate. He just can't do it. It's impossible for him to get in because, you see, we're not vying for another person's position. We're not trying to outdo someone else. We're just minding our own business, doing our own thing, doing what God called us to do. And praise God, there's unity among the people and God is glorified within our midst. So, Next, love's boundless dimensions. And look at this. I, I know you've said, heard these before, but they bear repetition right here. Because when it comes to being rooted and grounded in love, we have to understand what these endless or boundless dimensions are. And you see Ephesians 3.18, and we put it side by side with John 3.16. And here's what we discover. May be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breath? What is the breath of God's love? What is it? In John 3, 16, God so loved the what? The world. So the breath of God's love is all-encompassing. It includes everything in creation. And I put this here for us to read. Look at um, Adam Clark's commentary on Genesis 1:31, And then we'll look at those verses in just a moment. When he said everything was brought to its predestined end and everything was brought to a place of perfection, he said it was superlatively or only good, as good as they could be, the plan wise, the work well ex executed, the different parts properly arranged, their nature, limits, mode of existence, manner of propagation, habits, um, mode of sustenance, permanently established and secured. For everything was formed to the utmost perfection of its nature so that nothing could be added or diminished without encumbering the operations of matter and spirit on the one hand or rendering them inefficient to the end and proposed on the other. And God has so done all these marvelous works as to be glorified in all, by all, through all. So look at these verses in Genesis 1, 31 through 2, 1. Let's read those. Here, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was what? Very good. It was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. So God brought everything in creation to a place of perfection. Could never be improved upon whatsoever. And because he is love, everything that he creates is motivated by love. And we can look at it this way. He created the universe that we live in right here to love one planet more than all, and that is the earth. Everything set in our galaxy right here where we live, in this atmosphere that we live in, is designed to minister life to the earth or to love the earth. Then the earth we know was made before man, and the earth has everything in it to satisfy the needs of man, or we could say that the earth loves man. So everything in creation loves the earth, everything in the universe, all the stars, the sun, the moon, and all that. But then the earth loves the man to provide for him a place of habitation. Then man was designed 
basically God wanted him to set his love back on God, but he failed to do so and created the fall that we, of course, all have experienced in our lives. But notice the breath of God's love. It is seen everywhere. God's love is throughout the entire universe, and also it includes every people group of the world. God so loved the world. Any person, every person, whoever was, is, or ever will be, will not be able to say to God, you didn't love me, because he did and he does and will always love all humanity. So what does that tell us? doesn't matter who they are, where they come from, what their color of their skin is, their race, doesn't matter what their ethnicity is, it doesn't matter their gender, doesn't matter how wealthy they are, their social status, or anything of that nature. God loves every human being perfectly. And then, secondly, the breadth of God's love is seen in creation, but the length of God's love, to what length would God go? Go back to Ephesians 3.18, to what length would he go? He so loved the world that he gave his son. Notice this, the length of God's love. Now John 3.16 says, to what length would he go? He gave his only begotten son. When someone says, God doesn't love me, you have never studied the scriptures. He loves you so much that something happened that you and I cannot wrap our brains around. He sent the second person of deity, his son, his only begotten son, into the womb of a woman to have a body provided for him so that he, through his sinless perfection and life, could redeem us from our fallen state. How much more can a person love when Jesus said, greater love is no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends? So to what length would he go? It's found in the incarnation. Then the next the incarnation, next is the height or the depth of God's love. Look at Ephesians 3.18, the depth of God's love. To what depth would he go? Just put up John 3.16 again. To what depth? Whoever believes in him should not what? Perish. To what depth would he go? Not only did he just become a man and walk on this creation that he created, but now he goes to a cross and he becomes sin. And he takes upon himself the iniquity of us all. He becomes the curse on Calvary's tree and suffers the full brunt of the wrath of Almighty God. To what depth would he go? You cannot go to a deeper depth than that. So for me to understand the love of God, he loves the world. He became a man. He died in my place. But then also it doesn't stop there. The height of God's love is seen that he would have everlasting life. John 3, 16, everlasting life. There was an impartation in us of life as God has it. He raised us up to sit together with him in the high heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So you and I are practically here in this church building, but positionally we are seated with him at the right hand of the majesty on high. A revelation of these endless dimensions of God's love that I believe the church has really failed to look into deep enough, deeply enough, correctly enough to understand. I need to renew my mind and restore my soul because it's hard for me to imagine that someone can love me that much. What about you? How can someone love me that much? 
Would you lay down your life for your child? I would say you would. Think about it. Sure you would. But would you lay down your life, your child's life for someone else? That's too much to ask. God laid down his only son. And I believe that's the, that's the reason why it was the second person of deity that had to become the man. Because there's no greater than that. I guarantee you, any parent out here would say, take mine, not my child. But God says, take my child, not me. Because it's deeper. It's more meaningful. Wow. That's how much he loves us. And that's how much he loves the people around us. And why is this important? Because if we're going to be compassionate toward other people, we have to understand we've got the same kind of love. Okay, look in, and we'll close it. Look at the Romans chapter 5 and verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Wow. This agape, this divine love of God has been poured into us. You see, when we got saved, we passed from death to life. But look at 1 John 3, 14. This is how important this is. We know that we pass from death to life. Why? Because we love the brethren. Love is the acid test. He that loves not his brother abides in death. We've got the love of God that was poured into our being and just flooded our souls, our spirits, overflowing with this agape, divine love of God. That's produce, that produces the joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. See, joy is love's strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. But joy is love's strength. Oh, thank God. Thank God, thank God. What does that mean? We have this love. It's in us. It's in the workshop of our spirits, but it's up to us to see to it that we do our part to do what? Develop it. Let's close by John 13, 34 and 35. You and I have this love. It's on the inside of us. And every single one of us is called upon to walk in that love to follow Jesus. So following love is following Jesus. We deny self. We take up our cross and surrender our wills and follow him by loving as he loved humanity. In its breadth, length, depth, and height. A new commandment I give you. That you love one another. Not as you love yourself. But as I have loved you. That you also love one another. By this shall all men know. This is what lets people know. That you are my disciples. If you have loved one to another. So the question is. We have the love in us. What are we doing with it? Are we yielding to it? Are we allowing it to take control of our lives? Are we looking to the Lord daily to see to it that his love and compassion manifests in us? Do we ask him for eyes to see people the way he sees people so that we're moved and motivated by this love just as Jesus was when he walked the earth? Let's all stand together before the Lord.